Hello everyone, I'm George Sapio and this is On Stage, Off Stage, the show for theater geeks and real people too. Our guest this week is Rachel Lampert, the Artistic Director of Ithaca, New York's Kitchen Theater. She just celebrated her 17th anniversary in this August position. She is also a choreographer, ran her own dance company for years. She's an accomplished actor, director, producer, playwright, and she is a four-time recipient of NEA Choreography Fellowships and received a Syracuse Area Live Theater Award for Best Actress in 2004. The Kitchen Theater is now entering its 24th season with its first show debuting on September 10th. With all this material, it was hard to know where to start with Rachel, but we began by talking to her about running the Kitchen Theater as artistic director and how she managed to find herself in that position. Never had any intention in my life to ever being the artistic director of a theater. Maybe I would be, the, I, I was the artistic director of a dance company and I thought maybe one day we'll have a space and we'll have a theater in it and we will be performing, but I never thought that we, I would be the artistic director of a theater. But I married Bye. my husband and in Louisiana where I met him and he tried to get a job up in this neck of the woods and because I was, thought I was way too far away from New York City, and David got a job up here. And so I got, you know, I was one of those um, trailing spouses that got, and I always say kicking and screaming, moved to Ithaca, which was for me a long way away from New York City, which is where I wanted to be most of the time. But I had a little connection to Ithaca through Bob Moss at the hangar, because he had hired me to direct a couple of times there. So I had a, a sense of Ithaca, mm -hmm. but it wasn't where I wanted to necessarily be. But when you uh, arrive in a place like this, and you're not connected to the university, and you don't have children, it is really hard to kind of figure out where to land. Yeah. Very, very hard. In fact, I have to say that when new people come into town and they come to the office and they say, you know, I'm an, I'm an, an actor, I'm a designer, I'm a director, whatever, I take time to find out who they are because it was very hard to figure out what I was going to do with my, you know, my skill set. How do I yeah. use it? So um, I met Norm Johnson practically the second day I was here. And right. I... Um, Norm at that time was the artistic director yeah. of the Kitchen Theater. He also is a professor at Ithaca College. Right. And uh, he was teaching in, a, in the summer at the Hangar Lab Company. And he asked me, because he's heard that I was in town, to do some movement workshop with, with um, the kids. We did that. And then Norm and I just, we hit it off right away. He asked me to do some directing. I'd always directed. I mean, it's, it's just a strange thing because I have such respect for directors. What I'm about to say is, is going to sound so ridiculous. But I got into the world of, of theater from being in the West Side Story in 1968 in New York City in the, the, one of the Broadway revivals. So I, I very naturally fell into choreographing musicals. Right. And so that was really easy for me. So I, I mean, not easy to do, but, you know, that seemed like a natural path. Well, you had your own dance company for years, right? Yeah, I did. Because I was always more interested in concert art dance than I was in musical theater. So you're used to, tell, you're used to telling people where to go. Uh, yes, as Margaret Perry and I say, we're the, the deciders. <laughs> <laughs> so both of us are deciders. So um, I... I just uh, would direct, I would uh, choreograph musicals. And then one summer I was at Mill Mountain Theater and a director kind of um, backed out of his, his uh, commitment and the artistic director said, do you think you can do this, Rachel? Can you direct the, the whole thing? And I said, sure. So I started, I started directing musicals when I was like 21 years old. Um, but I never thought of it as, as, as myself as director in the way that I think of myself as a director these days. Yeah. So all of this was just the happenstance of arriving in Ithaca, Norm offering me some opportunities to both direct and to even act at the kitchen. And then Norm was really exhausted from, it's a very hard job and one should not have a full-time teaching job and try and do this, this particular job. So the board, when he decided he wanted to step down, they asked me if I were, if I were interested. And I said, well, I'm going to China, and I'm going to direct uh, West Side Story over there. And so when I come back, I'll figure it out. Of course, 
The first place that my husband took me to convince me that I should come and move here to Ithaca with him the mm-hmm. was the kitchen theater when it was in the Clinton House. Right, the beautiful once Clinton House. Yes, I, I love that space. Yes, I love that space too. Um, and it was a lovely production of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea mm-hmm. and um, was really well acted. And there were three people on the stage, and there were about six of us in the audience. And my husband, David, said, see, Rachel, you can be here. Look at this wonderful theater. I said, yeah, but this theater is not going to be around very long. Look at the count. (laughs) Just Uh do the math. And it was around for how long, eventually? Now it's around for, we're going to start our 24th season. Right, but you were were in the old Clinton house for a number of years. You've only been in the new space for, what, two or three years now? No, this is the fifth. This is the fifth? Oh, my God. Gosh. Been George, but this is the fifth season. <laughs> no, but at that when when I first saw the saw a play at at, at the kitchen in the yeah. Clinton House, it was early on there, and, and it was I think maybe the sixth season of the mm-hmm. of the theater. So I wasn't convinced that the kitchen theater was going to be viable. But a few years later, when I was off of the job and I went to China, I had a great time, and so I came back. I thought, okay, I think I can do this. The difference between yeah. running a theater and running a dance company has all to do with real estate. The, uh, a dance company, very few dance companies don't have their own studio. You rent space, you fi- finish your work, and then the way that you made, you made your living was to be on the road. And you go from one place to another to another, right. and you have a repertory. Like we traveled with maybe, I don't know, there were seven or eight dancers, and then we would have maybe 10 or 12 pieces that we could put together to make the concert. So we could vary it a little bit if someplace had us for two nights. But you have this body of work, and you keep adding on to it. You know, maybe I was, I was pretty prolific and usually added one new piece a season. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you never tra- come back to the same place. Maybe three or four years later they'll have you back. Yeah. So you can take your little your show that you have and go around and around. So you're not paying for real estate, and you're pleasing a new group of people everywhere you go, right. as opposed to real estate that you have to you know, pay the rent or pay the mortgage, and then an audience that returns year after year after year and say, okay, and now what do you got for me? You know? <laughs> so, in, in a sense, it's almost like being trapped in one spot and, and having to tap dance a whole lot faster. Uh, for most of our audience, they, they can't see where we are right now, but we're sitting in the middle of one of the most beautiful little theaters <laughs> ever. And you guys spent an awful lot of money on... rehabbing this building and making it perfect and that does not come cheaply (laughs) but um, you are here and this is your home so my question is and I think we're just about to get there anyway is it easier or harder to bring the folks to you or is it better to go around finding them as it is with the dance company well um, it's the most challenging thing is choosing the season and pleasing the same wonderful group of people that have mm-hmm. come to come to the theater year after year, we have now have about 650 subscribers. They're very invested. And if last year's thing, people always come up at the end of the season, this was the best season ever. Yeah. And then I go into practically cardiac arrest because I've chosen the next season, and I don't know whether that's going to be better than the last season. So. I, and I had no idea of that until the end of my first season at the kitchen, yeah. and we were you know, getting to be around March and April, and the board was saying, oh, what's next year's season going to be? But, oh, next year's season. Like, I'm just trying to get these. At the time, we had seven, seven plays up. So it, it's very, very challenging. Yeah. And Do you still feel like you have to outperform the previous season? Yes, live up. If it's... Yes, live up to the standard that we set the season before. Yeah. And, um, and if there were some kind of wonderful formula for this, all artistic directors would I be... I would pay you a million dollars to let me in on it. Right. And Broadway producers would be happy to buy my book on that, too. But, you never, I mean, you just never know. And so if we do a play that, like last year we did Venus and Fur... Right. And it was hugely successful, as was Seminar. 
Um, right. And both of these were Broadway shows, and that's usually not our stock and trade. Usually we're doing plays that maybe never had a Broadway production. Right. With those two plays, this season, we don't have any of those really recognizable mm-hmm. names. So is that going to affect us negatively? Is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? I love every play that we ever produce. And, right. you know, people say to me, how's the play, Rachel? I say, oh, it's wonderful. You know? <laughs> oh, of course it's wonderful. It's like your children. But making sure that we have... I've been really diligent about what's going up and what we're going to be producing. Absolutely the hardest thing. And is it going to interest people? And we have a very diverse group of people who come to the theater, so you can't please everybody all the time. So I have to know that, you know, and I have to know that there are things that maybe are on the top of my list that can't quite get there yet, or there are things that are, are, you know, I'm I'm a very... uh, I'm a downtown kind of theater girl, mostly. So yeah, I like some pretty far out things, and right. we only do that a little bit. We, we tiptoe in that direction. It's a question, and I've, I've spoken to artistic directors from all over the country and whatever, and after speaking to them, and I don't want to narrow this down to just this point. There's always so much more that goes into this, but it comes down to butts and seats. Mm-hmm. All right? You've got to pay for everything. You've got to pay for the, the electricity, the dimmers, the, uh, the air conditioning, the actors, the director, all the different tech people. And you do that by getting grants. You do that by uh, funding. You do that by getting butts in seats. Mm-hmm. Now, coupling that with what you, Rachel Lampert, want to see on stage, okay, there's got to be... A meeting of the purposes here. What do you think is good theater? What do you think the audience should see? What do you think you want to present? And what do you think will get the most amount of people in here? Now, when it comes to picking a new season, there are always 10,000 playwrights for every stage. Okay? Mm-hmm. What's your filter? How do you do this? I mean, what's, what's the process? Well, um, you know, we say important conversations happen in the kitchen. Exactly. And I keep that as right on the top of the mm-hmm. list of, like, when people leave this theater, are they going to go across the street or down the street and have a drink at Felicia's, and are they going to be talking about the play or are they going to switch to some other topic? And so if I think they're going to stay on the play, then... That or that that gets in the that gets the play definitely on the list, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to choose hits. Believe me, yeah. if my if I could choose hits, my board would be like totally thrilled with every every single one of my choices. But the mission of the theater, which everybody involved, including the board, and I think including now the subscribers and people that come is that we're going to do things that sometimes push the envelope and that it's not to everyone's taste. And the, the, the thing that I most, um, I don't like to use the word pr- proud because I just feel like that word has to do with something else, but I, the, the thing that gives me the, the most, I'm most excited about is that people come to the theater and sometimes don't like the play, mm-hmm. but they still come here. So then why do they sit in the seat? to sit through that play that they already knew, maybe the topic didn't interest them, maybe they knew that it was going to have the kind of language that makes that offends them, um, maybe they thought generally, generationally that it was, yeah, I, don't, you know, I don't really care about 20-somethings anymore, whatever it is, sure. or just the opposite. You know, I'm, Not every play is going to please every audience right. member, and right. that's, that's got to be a given. But when they come... We've taken incredible care Mm -hmm. to make the production as great as it can possibly be by getting the best actors that we possibly can, by everything out there is really, really honest, so there's nobody out there that you don't feel like, I'm in really great hands with this actor, that the directors are really wonderful, and that the level of the production in terms of how how it's acted, how it's directed, how it's designed... And hopefully the heart of the play is able to come forward and people can say, well, you know, well, Rachel, and this happened, they say this to me, I wasn't, didn't really like this play, but I thought that, wow, that, that set was amazing and the way that the 
the relationships of the actors, or this was such an ensemble piece, something about it. Yeah. That, and so I feel like we have a very discriminating audience, and they, you know, they support the fact that there's, there are going to be plays that you might not like. And sure, they yeah. also know that there'll be plays, and they always say, you know, I, I'd like to come out of here smiling and laughing, you know. Right. And, you know, everybody, we all feel that way. We, have, we live in a tough world, and, you know, and, and if you're an existentialist like me, mm-hmm. you're, you're worried about the whole thing all the time. But they, as long as I can keep it ebbing and flowing from things that are, that really are so provocative and thought and and thought provoking that when you leave here you might be crying. Right. I mix that up with times when we have an outrageous comedy, and to me that also is important. Conversations happen in the kitchen because without humor, you know how would men survive or uh, women? You know we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Yeah. So, uh, do we worry about the how many? Butts are in the seat, as you say. Yes, we do. And if we do a season where there aren't a lot of butts in the seats, I try and analyze what was it about the plays, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can be more strategic. But again, it's an art. It is not a formula. Because if I had the formula, I'd write the book, make the millions, and then we could do anything we wanted to because we wouldn't have to care about it, that. But it's. But I'm a, it, it's it's got to be hugely hard choices. I mean, because you look at a play and you go by what you think will fill the house, okay? And you also have to go by what you think is good theater. And mm-hmm. it's awfully hard to do. I mean, it's, I know I've read, I don't know how many scripts in my time, but mm-hmm. it's after a while you start to get a little script blind. Is this good? How do I know anymore? And, and I've had moments where I've, nights where I've come out of the theater in the worst mood possible because I've just seen a brilliant play. And it has stuck with me. And some the, the ones I can think of right off the top of my head, um, years ago at the hangar, I saw How I Learned to Drive. Mm-hmm. And that totally kicked my mind uh, at the kitchen. Uh, Yellow Man mm-hmm. and From White Plains. Mm-hmm. And I know I talked about those for weeks afterwards. And they were both, they were very unsettling. Mm-hmm. And as a playwright myself and as a director and as, as a producer, that's the kind of stuff that I agree with you should be done because... It keeps us alive, mm-hmm. right? We don't come waltzing out of there happy and smiling and dancing and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, it's, this goes into my next question. Should theater be held to a different standard of other forms of entertainment? Are we special? Is, is, is theater, because of its nature, because of its live nature, because of its transitional, fleeting nature, in a sense, production goes up, might not be seen again for a while? Do we have a special responsibility to the public that other forms of entertainment don't have? You say important conversations happen in the kitchen. That's why I'm asking. Well, I think we are a different species than a film is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have... They, even even a, a, a film that's produced with, on a minimal budget, they have the opportunity to go back and fix something if they, if they right. manage. They can... So that you can control the experience much more. We can't control the experience at all. And it is so unique every single night. And you know this, George, that you know mm. it's the play, the actors that night, the numbers of people who are in the theater, where the people were before they came here, what's been on the news the, the, the day before, um, whether or not the, it's sunshine or rain, all those things come together, and so that live theater is so wonderful because it won't be like that ever again. And so are we allowed to... I mean, I'm wondering what you're asking me. Are we allowed to um, to do more crazy things, or are we, are we beholden to do more crazy things? Must we keep pushing the envelope? I wouldn't say crazy. I would, I would say... Content-wise, do are we held to a stricter standard of quality of text? I I think we are because that's what that's what the audience is getting, mm-hmm. and so if you then it doesn't mean that there can't be some magnificently visual events that happen oh, in the theater not. that yeah, are sure, that are yeah. really gorgeous, mm-hmm. but it's the it's that experience of the actor speaking whatever the words the playwright has given that actor to speak, and us hearing, and 
they don't go by with you know a gorgeous background or beautiful musical underscoring right. it's very it's bare and it's very it's it's naked out there when you're just standing there and talking or two people are mm-hmm. you know in a dialogue so yeah it has to be much richer much more textured really well acted yep. very thoughtful from the side of the playwright the director has to understand what's going on for the play and the playwright and yes it is it is it's harder than anything else like like um film right. and i i do think that what's very difficult now is that many people not so much our audience but many people expect entertainment to make them feel good and um, I look at entertainment. We have this conversation here all the time, this word entertainment, right. because I don't think it's, it's a bad word. I think I am entertained when I go to a play that really moves me. I, this summer I got to see the dress rehearsal of uh, Breaking the Code, which is a magnificent play, and Joe Polarco directed it at Barrington Stage, and we crashed his, his, uh, his, rehe- his dress rehearsal. Um, it was an experience that I, that I just thought was fantastic. It's about Alan Turing, who was the, mm. the, you know, broke the right. Enigma right. Code. It is a very sad play. It talks about you know, a time in, in when being homosexual, uh, you could be you know, gross indecency, would be, you could become sure. a felon. Yeah. And um, just a very, it's, it's so, it's, it's a sad play about a man who doesn't know how to really communicate in the world because he's so smart and he's, and he really doesn't have a lot of social graces, and he is homosexual, and so he's persecuted by the very country that he saved. Mm-hmm. And you, you leave the theater, I left that theater thinking, this is an amazing story. Well, we haven't come that, <laughs> we haven't come far enough yet, um, and that all of this happened, like, since in my lifetime. I mean, he was older than me, but, you know, the 19, late 40s is when they are, the, the play starts. I come, come away thinking that. And then I also come away thinking, what amazing performances Joe got out of these people. What a fantastic ensemble of people this was. Mm-hmm. How he told the story, not just from the wonderful text that he had, but from the, the way that he moved the actors around. One table, couple of chairs, nothing else. Gorgeous simple set design and lighting that was just, that took you away. And so I was totally entertained. Right. Even though my heart was beating really fast, my husband and I turned to look at each other when it, when it was over and we were just, you know, I mean, I could start to cry now thinking about this play. But that to me is entertainment. Sure. And so yeah. when, I, when I talk to audience members here and they talk, we talk about that word entertainment, you, you know, you just have to really broaden what, what it is. You want to have a really rich experience when you go to the theater, just like when you go to an art gallery, when you go to a concert. You want to right. have a rich, deep experience, and sometimes it'll bring you to, to laughter, and sometimes it'll bring you to tears, but it's the deep experience, and that's why the important conversations happen in the kitchen matter, right. because if it's a fabulous, wacky, incredibly irreverent comedy like we're going to start this season with The House, which has got lots of adult language in it and Mm -hmm. it goes to an insane place, I think the audience is going to be rolling in their seats and also shocked at at the behavior of the people. That's to me, is entertaining. And when we see these actors, they're going to be four fabulous actors and Margaret's going to direct. It's It's going to be amazing. Is it the same thing as coming out of... um, from White Plains. Well, yeah. well I, I think entertainment is not. We need to find a better word than entertainment because it has such a positive connotation. And you walk out of most movies watching these people crowbar these happy endings into things, all for the all for the the result of having people walk out happy or walk out smiling. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we what we term as entertainment, you just call the rich, deep experience. And I like that. All right, that's, that's what I think we should be offering our patrons, our audience, giving them something. I think theater should change you in some, yeah. even if it's a small way. I mean, 
giving you your money's worth, yes, first of all, but also giving you something worth your intelligence, worth your soul, giving you something that, that adds to your life, not just helps you watch it go by. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I agree with you totally, George. And I think that's, um, that's hard to do because, you know, not everything has has even the potential for that. So right. it has to have the potential for that on the page. And then as the artistic director slash producer, you got to get all those, all, everything right there in a row mm-hmm. so that all of those parts can come together because it's an incredibly collaborative art form. And then you have to hope that that night without those actors in that community with what happened on the mm-hmm. radio and what the weather is and what they're, what the experiences that each individual is willing to go through, that's the risk you take. Because someone will come out of um, from White Plains and feel so devastated by that final long monologue that Carl had at the very end of the play that they won't be able to speak and they'll be okay with that. And then someone else will come out and say, that was way too disturbing. And Mm -hmm. they start to think about well, I don't know whether that's the experience I wanted tonight. I had a hard time with that. And I read the play previously because I interviewed Carl for the show a while back. Mm-hmm. But watching him do that on stage, for some weird reason, I had this thing in the back of my head saying, no, he's going to do it differently. He's going to change the text. It's, it's going to be okay. It's going to be... But no, he came to the same extremely logical, very reality-based conclusion, you know, out- outcome. And I thought... This is not satisfying at all. In fact, this is disturbing. Mm-hmm. And but that's the way I think it ought to be. Well, that's what that, that's how that character viewed the world. Right. And I thought it was very brave to have that character be unforgiving, ultimately unforgiving. Mm-hmm. And um, even though the bully has has presented every possible reason to forgive, right. and the idea of of not forgiving and also going through that fabulous reasoning, as you said, yeah. that that um, Michael Perlman and the whole, all the guys right. collaborating, yeah, it, it, it take it took you to a place that you wouldn't expect. You would expect that he would say, "You've really hurt me, and now let's be friends." Sure, and yeah. and he didn't. It might be handled that way in Hollywood. It might be handled that way in a dozen other different places. Right. But I. I I was convinced that this play was, was one that actually stuck to the basic truth of humanity, and I, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Okay. 17 years you've been doing this. Yes. Okay? <laughs> 17 seasons. Mm-hmm. You walked into this thing learning as you went. You've been doing this for a while now, and you have a great reputation, and you're, it's this, this theater is one of the best theaters going. Have the audiences changed in the time since you stepped in? I mean, are they different now? I mean, I know the world is different because you came in in, what, 96, 97? 97. All right? And we all know at the turn of the millennium, everything changed for a whole lot of people. Um, America changed fundamentally. How does that work for you? I mean, how, how do you deal with, with... Have they changed, and how do you deal with that? Well, I think they've changed, as, as you say, because history's changed. And we have lots of subscribers. When I arrived here, we had under 50. But of that under 50 subscribers, most of them are still with us. If they're, if they're still literally with us, right. they're still with us. So those people have, have come through. But I do think that, that the world has changed, and the post-9-11 time is different. And we're all different. Even young people who come are different. And so um, I think it's been more important to be on top of the message in a certain way. That is, what the kitchen is trying to do is do plays that when you come out, you're going to keep talking about them. That when you're in there, it's going to be honest, it's going to be intimate, it's going to be personal, and it's it's going to be a group of people who have done incredible work to craft this in a way that it's going to affect you. And that's, I have to say that, continue to say that. I thought maybe I would stop having to say that, but I don't. I have to keep, that's, that's what I have to keep talking to the audience about, especially when we don't step back from 
doing a play like um, Cock, let's say, last uh-huh. year, right. or um, the year before Motherfucker with the Hat, that, uh-huh. that um, I had no idea how those plays would, would come off. I thought they were fantastic plays. I thought that um, Motherfucker was just an amazing piece, and yet I knew that it was going to be really hard for people even to, to think of the title. Right. And so in the curtain speeches before, in the play before uh, that play was on, I would say, and the next play on the season, we can't say it on the radio, and we can't say it on television, and we can't print it in the paper, but it's live theater, and we can say it. So I'm going to tell you, the next play we're doing is Motherfucker with a Hat. And then I'd say it again. Oh, maybe you didn't hear me right. It's Motherfucker with a Hat. <laughs> and so... You know, it was, <laughs> I'm sure some people did not like that, and I'm also sure that many, that more of a majority of people thought, oh, well, she's just very much subverted all of the, <laughs> the, the awful part of this word by saying it out loud like that. And Could that play have been done 20 years ago, 17 years ago, or 17 years ago when he started? Um, I, don't, I don't know. It wouldn't be done exactly as it is. It certainly wouldn't have the title. No well, producer. Yeah, no, yeah. I think the title would have had to go. But um, I think Gerges really has. He when I when I go back and look at plays that are that were dark and really um, uh, harsh early on, there are other there are other playwrights who were doing things that that had a um, harshness to the way he does. He captures the humor, though, and the humanity of these characters that are uh, mostly outside of the world, of the experience of a lot of people who are subscribing to theater. And so that's the challenge, is, and he gets it, because you go in there and you see people whose lives are so different from your own, and yet you have empathy for them, and you un- want to understand their stories, and you get the joy in their triumphs, and you feel really awful at their, at their failures. So he was, uh, I thought that was a great play. That last year's play, Cock, who knew what that was going to be like? And it has no scenery and no props and anything else. I thought it was wonderful. And Lungs, to me, was a, probably the hardest play of, this, of the year because it came after Cock from the same group of playwrights that are the... the uh, apathists in in London, and so they uh, all their plays have this sort of bare bones idea. So we'd already seen it in, in Cock. Now we're going to Lungs, and I thought that that director and those two actors did a magnificent job of taking us on this incredible journey of two people deciding whether or not they are going to have a child and whether or not they're going to stay together. The demographics have changed some. Let me ask you this, because I know a lot of other theaters think about this a lot. Um, Getting young people into the theater, is that as difficult as I'm hearing? How How does that work with the kitchen? Are you having a problem with it, or are you programming with them in mind in certain cases? Well, we're certainly programming with them in mind. And we're also programming with the fact that a lot of our uh, older subscribers have been coming for a long time. We have to, we have sure. to program with them in mind. And we had a little crossing over that happened um, the year, I think it was, um, maybe it was 2007 or 2008, when I, we did several, we did four world premieres, and some of them had young people in them. One was Archaeology by Rachel Axler. Um, it was one other that season, I forget. It wasn't a world premiere, but that was when I think we had, we finally got people who were younger coming into the theater and people who were older getting more interested in those younger characters. Mm-hmm. And so now it feels like it's much more of a, of a mix of peoples generally, generationally than it had been. Although you have to be, you have to keep your feet to the fire on that one because too many plays without any representation, then you're not. The people are going to feel like, well, maybe it isn't for me because I, I right. do at some point want to see myself up there or I want to you know, see the things that are close to me. So keeping uh, in mind always that, that there's a lot of different people who come to the theater, wanting to have the most diverse both on stage and in the audience, I have to keep those things in mind. So in this play like uh, The House, which we open with, there's an old, older couple and a younger couple 
perfect because there's somebody there that everybody can look at and say, oh, yeah, I understand them, at least from their generation they can understand them. Um, But then there'll be other plays where people will say, no, no, that's really about old people. That's really about young people. That's really about white people. That's really about people of color. And so constantly trying to think about it and not be a bean counter about it because I don't think that that's really particularly helpful. Just looking for the best work that reflects the broadest number of people. So let's talk about the new season then. I've got the the, uh, season right in front of me here. We started talking about the house. Yes. And you've got uh, Lonely Planet by Stephen Dietz. I'm familiar with the name. I'm not familiar with the play. Okay. Well, Stephen Dietz is a wonderful playwright, really, really wonderful playwright. But it's about the time when the AIDS epidemic was um, was in full throng. Or It's about a, young, a man who uh, owns a map store, and he can't seem to leave the store, and has a friend who comes in every day with outrageous stories about where he's employed, the world outside, trying very much to motivate the character who's in the map store to go out into the world. And this play just touches me because that was a very uh, difficult time in my own life because I was in the middle of the dance world, which was really affected by that epidemic, lost many friends. And I just stayed away from this play because I thought... It was just too dark. It's actually very, very funny. Sounds good. Sunset Baby by Dominique Marceau. She's just this really hot playwright. She also wrote this play, Detroit 67, which um, everybody's talking about as, as well. Sunset Baby has a great story, and I think, again, intergenerational, mm-hmm. because there's um, uh, an African-American uh, political revolutionary who's been in jail, and he's now, he's now out, and he's trying to um, figure out how to reconnect with his daughter, who he hasn't seen in many years while he was incarcerated. And uh, she's very much outside the law. She has a, a, a boyfriend who's way outside the law. And it's about people coming together and trying to figure out, like, what is a family and where are we going to find some common, some common ground. And the next one is by this Rachel Lambert person um, called Count Me In. And we know it's still being scribed <laughs> as we talk, so we're going to pass over this one for the moment. Okay. We'll move on to Lee Blessing's play, A Body of Water. Well, um, Lee Blessing, he might be the most chameleon-like playwright there is, I think. Maybe, maybe um, Jeffrey Hatcher is the same way, too. But <laughs> Interesting combination right well, there. I mean, I'm just talking about people who write different styles. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about whether you like them or not, but, you know, two people, it's a mystery, so I'm not going to tell you that much about it, or it, it unfolds in a mystery. Okay. But it, um, there's a couple who wake up in the morning, they're, they're you know, they're not. They're in their fifties or sixties, and clearly they've been to bed together, and clearly they know each other, but they don't know how they know each other. And this goes on for a little while, and then into this mix comes another character who's younger, who maybe it's their daughter, maybe it's not their daughter, maybe it's somebody who comes in to take care of them, and the play keeps unfolding and unfolding until we find out what the truth is about these three people. After that is a solo play festival. Give yeah. us a little bit on that. Well, um, we are going to have four guests, actually. One um, first week will be a woman named Lorraine Rodriguez-Reyes, and she has a play called Mammy Confessions, and it's all about uh, her uh, pregnancy, about being a mother, and particularly from um, a Latina perspective. Uh, she's a charming, wonderful actress, and I think people will find that really terrific. Um, then Darian Deshawn is back, and he's doing a piece called Black Sheep, which we actually helped support by getting a grant through the New York State Council on the Arts for him to write it, and he's been working on it for couple of years. And Darian, we know, audiences will know because he was in The Whipping Man and in The Brother's Size. And we've done two of his other solo shows in the past. So he's going to be great. And then the final week uh, week of it is uh, Michelle Courtney Berry doing Half an Evening and Ryan Hope Travis, who was one of the actors in 
Slashes of Light last season. He played Stephen, the older of the... Of ah, the, yeah, I remember. Sure, on, yes. Yeah. Travels on the trains. And he's written... That, I think they would be wonderfully um, paired. Her play is called Motherland, and it's about... It's motherhood and the motherland and Africa. And his play is about men who've abandoned their children. And he's, and he's kind of investigating what happens when fathers leave children. Okay, the next one, you're actually bringing a play back that you oh, did yeah. a few years ago, Swimming in the Shells by Adam Bach. Yes. Okay, I saw this play the first time, and I loved it. But I still have problems with the shark. Okay. I, I, this just, it, it was beautifully played. Pete Rush was, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, watch the glass. What's your problem with the shark? Tell me, what, what's your problem with I, the shark? I'm going out on a date with a shark. I guess I'm being much too literalist in this. Well, I think you are. I think um, Adam Bach is telling us that love is hard and that sometimes it's really dangerous. And uh, the, the central character, Nick, has been... Uh, jumping around from one man to another, and when he finally you know, falls head over heels, it's a mako shark. It's a mako shark, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, why not? I, I, Adam Bach is so... I, this play is so wonderful, and I love Adam's writing, because uh, he takes in this play things that are just so ordinary, mm. but they are actually the things that make us crazy and... Uh, it's a fun play. It, it, is, it, it is such fun a fun play. Um, you don't know what to expect, and it's, it's to use this word that I absolutely loathe, it's entertaining all the way through. He is totally, yes. it is totally entertaining, and it lifts your heart, and you think about your own relationships and what you'll risk for the person that you love. So I think, I think that comes out in there, too. And you're finishing up with Thin Walls, Alice Eve Cohen. Yes. This will be Alice's coming back. She was here two years ago with a play, What I Thought I Knew, which was based on a memoir that she wrote. And um, this Thin Walls is a slightly older play. In, I can't tell you exactly the year, but Alice moved into an apartment house on West 77th Street in New York that was mostly a single-room occupancy residence, which mm-hmm. meant New York City had kind of dumped people into this this place to live. Yeah. There were often people with many challenges in life. Um, and so it was, a, it was a kind of dangerous, not very healthy place for everyone. And they decided one of the ways to change it was to begin to bring other people in and give them a low rent so that they would start to occupy the building and we'd get sort of mixed use. So Alice and her husband um, and their newly adopted daughter moved into this apartment. And Alice tells the story of, of all the people that she met. She plays all of them. She's a fantastic actress who can really inhabit lots of characters. I'd like to one day see her and um, Carl Gregory play together playing 60 people. Um, <laughs> a piece of cake for probably both of them. Right. So, yeah, maybe that's how we get to do, you know, Julius Caesar. <laughs> now, you, you can do the entire season in one show. Exactly. Well, we have just those two people on stage. Aside from doing all these crazy things that you do, you know, artistic directing, kitchen theater, and, and, and everything else, you're also a playwright, and you've written... By my blast count, which has changed since I walked in here, 12 plays was probably more, probably missed one or two. And they run the gamut from an adaptation of Kafka's The Trial, which is very dark, um, but beautifully choreographed, and uh, to what, what I'm going to call, in, with all due respect, family-friendly, mm-hmm. um, home-based uh, plays, uh, musicals, that sort of thing. When you're writing something for your audience, how does that work? I mean, do you just let it flow? Do you tailor it? Because I know as a playwright myself, I just throw stuff on the page and devil may care. Okay. Um, yeah, I like that about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes it flies, sometimes it don't. Because I, I wonder about that sort of thing. Because you are, the, you are the, the face of the kitchen theater. You are the personality of the kitchen theater. And when somebody comes to see a play by Rachel Lampert, they think they know Rachel Lampert. What happens? <laughs> oh, George, you've just hit the nail on that. Ah. <laughs> so, 
I have to work constantly to not censor myself and not have that thought in my mind at all. It's like, you know, somebody who's a school teacher, but in the evenings, you know, they have some other kind of job and they, you know, how awful if somebody came in and found out, you know, that they were singing in a bar or something like that, or even worse. (laughs) So um, it's, it is, that's, that's pretty hard for me. And I try not to do, not to think about all the people in the audience who do think that they know me and do think that, that, uh, if I say something that it must be me, like as a character in the play, oh, that must be her. Um, but I've had to do this my whole life. My first very successful dance was a dance about a family that, where the parents were at war with each other and a little girl who tries to figure out how to fit into that family. And my parents saw it at the Delacorte Theater, which is where Shakespeare in the Park happens in New York City. Mm. And... Uh, the 2,000 people in the audience, my parents told me the story because I was about to perform The Child, and uh, the lights go down, and my, um, some, someone right in front of my, my parents say, this plays, a, this piece, this is a dance, this piece is about her parents. And then the lights go down, and then here's this piece about these two parents who fight with each other and the child can't fit in and it's both funny and and shocking and uh, the piece is over and the even is over. My father comes backstage and he says, I never treated you that way and my mother said, I guess you just had to do it, Rachel. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> I think it's very, it's really challenging. I find it really easy to write the family fair plays that we used sure. to do. Um, but I also think that um, I probably am being more cautious than the audience because I think our audience is pretty bold and uh, they give me really a lot of room. So I will, I will endeavor, I'll take the vow right now <laughs> to not censor myself um, and to, you know, to continue to write the things that really mean something to me. Yeah. But... I do harken back to the to the dance days when you know you travel you're in in Nebraska and the next day you're sure. you know somewhere else and it's a completely different audience and they will like and not like things and you'll you'll never come back there again. Whereas here, mm-hmm. I do have to like go to Wegmans and you know come back yeah. here the next day. Or somebody once put it to me: the guy with the rope knows where to find you. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're right. Last question. <clears throat> Some starry-eyed youngster wanders into the kitchen theater. Oh, look at the grimace on here. Okay. And says, Rachel, I want to be an artistic director. Oh, that I can answer. Okay. I thought you were going to say actor. No, no, no. I want to be an artistic director. What do you tell them? I tell them uh, that they should learn everything about every aspect of the theater because... um, as much as it would be nice to think that artistic directors are just directing plays and reading plays and dealing with the artistic side, that almost every artistic director, even the biggies, mm-hmm. have to think about lots of other things. I tell them that they should you know, take an internship where they get to hang out with an artistic director, and there are a few of them around the country. We have, we have two people who do that and for a whole season. Um, I tell them that they should read as many plays as possible and make friends with playwrights and directors because that'll be where they find those plays that they can, you know, where they can bring something really to an audience. And I always tell people to self-produce until you can't bear to do it anymore because if you don't, then you'll never know what it is that you have. And You know, I've self-produced many, many, many seasons before my dance company earned a penny. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, there's sometimes here where I'm kind of self-producing when I want to do something that's a little outside the the box. So um, I think being an artistic director is a very interesting job. It's not, not without its challenges. A lot of times it's managing people, so figuring out 
how to get a lot of people to pull the boat in the same direction, and yet they're artists, so that they all pull up their, it's not that they're bad people, but they have a lot of opinions, and they're very creative, and they have, and, you know, actors have to be so vulnerable on stage for us that, you know, they don't have, many of them, not all, but many of them are, are you know, need a lot of thought before you uh, talk to them. Yeah. And so learning those skills so that everybody feels safe and everybody feels like they can do their work and that they're going to be respected, those are all parts of it. And then figuring out how does the theater fit in the community because that is really, really critical mm-hmm. because just because it's interesting to you and especially if you're in a small community and not that, you know, Ithaca is a... Is a you know, there are not a lot of people here. It it's, would be much easier in New York City, maybe not oh, to sure. get the um, to get the kind of support we get, but there wouldn't be any. The, the work can be um, would be acceptable to everyone there because there's there's a demographic. You know, you don't like that, you go over here. There are you know 400 performances going on every right. single night. Well, New York is relatively unlimited. Ithaca is not. Right, and so and understanding that that, you, you know, your job, I think this is for all artists, that your job is not just to do your work, but it also is to communicate with people what the work is that you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. doesn't mean you have to convert them. doesn't mean that you have to um, make them love it or whatever, but make them under, help, help them to understand what it is that you are doing and why it means so much to you and let let that passion show don't hold it back you know uh, let it show because you know sometimes I feel like oh my gosh I wear my heart on my sleeve all the time because like I love this painting that was sitting over you know I, I mean you know I love this actor but I think that that's really a helpful quality to have um, for an artistic director there's a lot of people here who do a lot of work yeah. and who are really part of the of why this has been a success um, Steve Nunley who I knew from so many years he danced in my dance company but he's been here for 10 years now and he has really helped revolutionize the place sure. and Leslie Green who's our associate producer who wears so many hats you know it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what Leslie is capable of doing, and we've had a we have a strong stage manager, Jen Chelansky, and we've had a consistent technical director. My gosh, for five years, plus a board that has been very understanding and willing to take the risk of letting us all do the plays that we want to do and embracing the artists that come here and, you know, falling in love with Margaret Perry and other directors that we have and other actors. So it's a, it's a much bigger thing than me. And, um, I always like to point that out because I do most of the time do the curtain speech and I'm oftentimes the person, the head of the stairs, but Steve's there too. And, Theater is a hugely, you know this, a hugely oh, yeah. collaborative art. and um, There are way more people behind every production than the audience can even begin to guess at. You have interns, you have actors, you have tech people, you have the, the people you depend upon week upon week upon month upon month to keep this thing going. And this is not a giant corporation. This is... Uh, <laughs> This is, this, this is a theater that survives year by year by year by a lot of very, very hard work. I agree. <laughs> Rachel Lampert, thank you so very, very much for being with us this week. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and good luck with the new season. Thank you, George. I hope I see you there a lot. You will. Okay. <laughs>